Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show and thanks so much for tuning in here with me today. It is Tuesday, May the 12th. I got a good show lined up here for you today. Plans are being made to get kindergarten to grade 5 students back in the classroom on a part-time basis. So I will be joined by the chair of SD73 to talk about how those plans are progressing. So that'll be coming up in just a little bit. And to end off today's show, I'll be joined by the owner of a local hair salon as they are among the businesses that have been given the green light to open as early as next week. So we'll see how uh, things are working out when it comes to the hair salon barbershop industry. But to begin today's show, well... There have been a lot of questions when it comes to personal protective equipment and the issues with the global market. And joining me now to talk more about how this can potentially be resolved with the importance of domestic production, I'm joined on the line by a resource policy analyst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, BC office, Ben Parfit. Ben, thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so let's just start, I guess, with, you know, the issue of domestic production. I mean, I think it's kind of an obvious answer, right, as we've talked about these issues over the past, you know, two months or so now. Um, But why is it so important that we start to see more and more of this equipment produced here? And we're specifically talking a little bit more about respirators, but why is it so important that we start making these and having a good supply within within our Canadian market? Well, I, we only have to look at what happened as uh, the COVID-19 virus spread. Um, we saw uh, leaders uh, uh, in countries around the world uh, scrambling to uh, secure supplies of N95 masks and other essential uh, medical uh, gear. And that uh, triggered some pretty um, uh, uh, bad behavior uh, that had implications for Canada. So, for example, uh, uh, President Donald Trump uh, involved uh, federal act to try and prevent uh, N95 masks from being shipped uh, by mask maker 3M uh, into Canada. Um, now that was eventually uh, resolved, but but the issue uh, here is that it really highlighted the vulnerability that uh, Canada and other countries have uh, to market forces that are really beyond their control. So if we're reliant on um, other countries uh, producing uh, these masks and other essential medical uh, gear, um, we're at the whims of the market. So I really believe it is incumbent on Canada to to learn uh, from uh, the lessons of this pandemic. And one of the lessons I think to be learned is that we should be self-sufficient in the production of our own masks and other gear here in Canada, um, and then any excess that is produced, of course, we, we could sell or provide at times of need to, to other countries uh, that require it. But we should be looking for a made-in-Canada solution. Um, and I think beyond just that, we should be looking at trying to make those products in, in the most environmentally and, and climate-friendly fashion that we can. And I think with the, the M95 masks that, that I've looked into, uh, there definitely is a real opportunity here in British Columbia to be uh, producing those masks and other essential items uh, using wood-based pulp instead of uh, oil-based synthetics. Yeah, and that sort of leads into my next question and actually answers that a little bit. I was going to say, you know, how viable is it to to start doing this work here in Canada? What is it about Canada that makes uh, uh, this country a place where, you know, building these N95 masks seems like something that could be done, uh, you know, with relative ease? 
Well, it might not be done with relative ease, but it could be done. So uh, when the last uh, coronavirus uh, to visit uh, Canada appeared more than a decade ago, uh, the SARS uh, virus, um, researchers at the University of British Columbia uh, joined with researchers uh, in Alberta um, to ask the question, is there a way that we could make a material uh, derived from, from wood pulp um, uh, that could, pr- could produce uh, a mask material that would compete uh, with uh, the N95 mask and meet the, the very high N95 standard. And the result of that research, which was published more than a decade ago, was that in Indeed, uh, it appeared that uh, a pulp-derived product could be made that would compete with uh, the oil-based mask material in 3M's N95 masks. So, you know, this was really important research that had been done. It had been uh, done here in Canada, you know, employing Canadian uh, minds and ingenuity. Um, and I think that that's an example of what we, we could be doing here in British Columbia and elsewhere in Canada, making products uh, from that are derived from our forests um, that could uh, meet um, a growing uh, number of needs um, and doing so in a way that replaced the use of um, fossil fuels, which is something we know we need to be doing anyways. Now, when we're talking about the procurement of this PPE, and specifically we're talking here about N95s, um, you know, I guess... Why is it so critical to to have these stockpiles within Canada? I know like when we're talking about, uh, sorry, let me rephrase this. So when we're talking about the situation as it stands right now, right, we know when we're talking about procurement, there has been a lot of calls from our federal and provincial governments to start building more domestically, right? Like those places that can, uh, you know, re-alter their manufacturing plants to be able to produce some things like gloves and gowns, like that, that's being promoted, right? And, and they're sort of asking more companies to do that. And it's going to be the same, I would think, you know, when it comes to these N95s and building them here in Canada. But, uh, you know, as we come out of this pandemic, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself when looking at that, but, you know, do you think there will be just uh, uh, an appetite to see some of the work that's already started continue to take place? Clearly, there's going to be um, a heightened awareness about PPE coming out of this. Oh, yeah. I think that there is going to be a growing interest in this. I mean, I, I think one of the, the sort of um, big big picture lessons with the pandemic is that it is really um, uh, forcing countries to look at what it means to be self-sufficient. And uh, you are seeing, I think, more and more people interested in reassessing and looking more closely at, at what it means to be um, uh, self-sufficient in the production of, of needed items. Um, so I, I do think that there's going to be a growing appetite for this. Um, and I also think it dovetails in this particular case um, very uh, neatly with um, what many people have been saying for some time, um, which is that the forest industry in this country needs to evolve and move in new directions. And there is a growing body of, of research into uh, bioproducts. So these are, are uh, any one of a number of materials that can be derived uh, from, from, from wood fiber. Everything from uh, biofuels to bioplastics to biofabrics, uh, a whole range of materials that could be um, derived from our forests and made in um, 
somewhat reconfigured um, existing pulp and paper facilities in, in, in the country. And I think that there's, you know, there's a real need to be moving in this direction. And, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a sad commentary that one of the industries uh, in the country that, um, you know, was among the first to, <laughs> to be getting funds was, was the fossil fuel uh, industry. And I really think it behooves uh, the federal and provincial governments to be thinking uh, more uh, carefully and clearly about what they could be doing uh, for the forest industry, uh, particularly in light of, of climate change. We know that we need to be moving in a different direction um, in this country and around the world in terms of weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels. And, and I think that there is room to be thinking about a, a, a dramatically expanded uh, range of products that could be derived from our forests. But there is a very, very important caveat, and, and, and that is that we have to do a great deal more um, to nurture our forests, uh, to, to make them more resilient in the face of climate change. We need to be conserving more forests as well. So this is not a, a, a slam dunk. There's a number of things that have to happen that um, could result in us seeing you know, more essential items like N95 masks uh, potentially being made here in BC. But at the end of the day, we have to be very, very cognizant of the fact that we have to look after our forests if that is going to happen. Yeah, and, and it sounds like, you know, the way, way you phrase it, right, when we're talking about the concerns just around our forestry industry here in BC, and I'm obviously looking for, for new ways to utilize that material, it sounds like it could be a real nice marriage if everything were able to be worked out between the forestry industry and this need for medical equipment. But I guess when we come out of this, um, you know, do you think that, um, you know, it sounds like a great idea right now, but once we're not in a pandemic, right, there, there no one was talking about the need for PPE, and no one was talking about the need for respirators. There was, uh, yeah, I remember even in Ontario, right? There was a hospital in Toronto that had stockpiled millions of masks and getting ready for if and when a pandemic were to happen. And then by the time one hits, all that stuff's expired. So I'm just curious if you think, you know, it sounds fantastic right now, but as we hopefully come out of this, do you think that there'll be less of a focus on this kind of stuff? I mean, you say there's a need to come up with new ways to utilize our forestry industry, but do you think that this might not have quite the legs it will coming out of a pandemic? Well, my hope uh, is that that will not be the case, that, that we will see that there is, um, uh, you know, a, a real need to ensure that we've got uh, adequate supplies of these materials. I think we should be doing everything we can to try and encourage the industry to move in, in that direction. Um, first to ensure that we have uh, adequate and secure uh, domestic supply, but, but also ultimately to help to reposition uh, the industry and, and make it stronger because it's got a more diversified product base. Um, you know, I think it's in everybody's interests to see that happen. I think the industry uh, in the province, the industry in the country has, you know, is in a rather moribund state. Um, anything that can be done to encourage um, uh, a transformation, I think, is uh, ultimately in uh, everyone's long-term uh, interest. I think so as well. I uh, just thought, you know, I would throw it out there because, like I say, I know when we're talking about being in it right now, it's uh, a huge priority. But uh, once we're not sort of in the thick of any sort of a emergency situation, these kinds of things do take a bit of a back seat. So I just think it's important to keep it front and center. And, of course, it's going to be for now, but we'll see what happens uh, if and when there is a vaccine uh, created for this uh, coronavirus. Then things might change a little bit. But I like the idea, Ben, and I really appreciate you coming on and talking more about it. 
Hey, thanks again for having me. Absolutely. That was uh, Ben Parfit, Resource Policy Analyst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the BC Office. And just talking about that need, you know, for uh, respirator supply, critical, obviously, right now. And, and we're seeing the, the height of the concerns around the supply issue right now and that need for a made-in-Canada solution. Well, it makes a whole lot of sense to me, and we'll see if the industry does move in that direction. Well, let's take a quick break here. And coming up, I'm going to be joined by the chair of the Kamloops-Thompson School Board to talk about what's going on with their plans to return to class at least for those kindergarten to grade 5 students. So stick around and the Jeff Andreas Show will be right back. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show and thanks so much for being here with me today. I'm joined on the line now by School District 73 Chair Kathleen Carpa. Kathleen, how are you today? I'm excellent, thank you. Good, glad to hear it. So I think it's probably, um, you know, Good to start with uh, really probably the thing that everyone wants to talk about. And I know you had the, the return to school plan uh, being part of yesterday's meeting. So what, what can you tell me right now about this uh, return to school update that you received? I mean, what exactly are you guys looking at right now in terms of that plan to start getting kids back in the classroom? So it's a multi-step plan. Um, the first thing is that uh, right now we're working on health and safety protocols so that when staff and students return to the schools, that they will be as safe as possible. So that's the first thing that we're working on. That is our priority for this week. Uh, next week, um, we'll be inviting teachers back into schools. Uh, they'll be working their regular hours, and they will be getting trained on all of those health and safety protocols that we're putting into place. And we'll start communicating with families to talk about schools for their kids um, and which days might work best for them because we're only going to have half of the kids in a classroom at any one time. So this isn't a full return to school. And we're also going to find out which families are planning on sending their children to school because this is voluntary. Um, not every child, it, we don't expect that every child's going to be coming back to school. Some families may feel uneasy about sending their kids back to school and they may want to keep them at home. So that's the second phase of it is training staff and doing some scheduling. And then once the provincial government tells us that we have the go-ahead, then we will have um, classes, in-person classes start. But that's totally up to the provincial government to let us know that the province is in the situation where it's safe for kids to come back to school. Okay. Now, when I talked to uh, Superintendent Allison Cito last week, she had basically said that, you know, looking at the 19th, right, May 19th, and, and when we were talking, that felt like it was probably a, a best-case scenario, right? Like, if everything went absolutely perfect and swimmingly, then maybe there could be a return to class on the 19th. I guess, what, what is the earliest date that uh, students might be looking at now? Has that changed at all? That has changed. Um, the earliest date that we're looking at right now is potentially maybe the 25th. We'll be ready for that date. Uh, right now, the provincial government is talking around uh, 1st of June. We will leave that decision as to when kids are coming back to school up to the provincial government. They will determine that, not the school district. Okay, so basically we'll have to wait and see what, what the province approves for that uh, return date, and then you guys will kind of follow suit. And, and so... 
I guess when, you, when you're starting to look through some of these schedules, right, you said you're contacting kids to see which days, um, or, or parents, I guess, to see which days their kids might best be able to, to come, whether it be a Monday, Tuesday, or a Wednesday, Thursday type of thing. Uh, you know, how long do you think it's going to take to work through all of that to, to get a real handle on your schedule? So that's what next week is for. So we will be having um, schools contacting parents. Um, we think that it's going to be the teachers that are going to be making contact with the families to find out which families are planning on sending kids to school. Uh, we'll have to be cognizant that uh, some families may want siblings to go on the same days or they may want them to go on different days. And that's a consideration that we'll have to take. And once we have an idea of numbers, and preferences then we'll build schedules from there okay uh what is it going to look like just in terms of like what a normal day would look like right would probably have um we're talking k-5 to students right so we're probably talking a full day of class with a couple of recesses built in and then um, maybe potential even for some after school activities so like i assume all of that is not going to be just normal as scheduled so uh, what what will a day look like do you have any idea could you maybe paint a picture of what uh, a full school day will look like when a student does get to finally return to school that's something that we're still working on. That will depend on the health and safety protocols that we put in place. It will depend on the guidelines that come down from the provincial health officer. And so it will not look normal. It will be quite different. And um, I can't give any specifics at this time. Okay. And and so uh, just to reiterate as well, we are strictly talking K-5 to students at this point in time and, and nothing, no grades beyond that are, are being looked at or can, is there any sort of, um, you know, conversation that's being had when it comes to older students at this point in time? With older students, we will be providing opportunities for some of them to do face-to-face -face instruction, particularly those students that are finding it a challenge to do remote learning, uh, students that need some extra help to make sure that they're able to complete their grade 12 year, uh, and those students that are a little bit more vulnerable in their learning. So we will be um, providing some opportunities for those students for face-to-face, but it is not going to be at the same level as for the K-5 to students. Okay, and then I assume those details are probably a little bit further down the road in terms of how that exactly is, is going to work? Exactly, and um, as we finalize plans and get them a little bit more concrete, we will be definitely in communication with families to let them know what are, what's happening and what their options are. Perfect. Um, I think that's about all I have on the return to school plan at this stage. Is there anything else that uh, you wanted to highlight or you think parents maybe are, are out there wanting to know a little bit more about before I uh, move on to a different subject? The biggest thing for us is that we are very much focused on the health and safety of our students and our staff. That's our first priority. We're going to do everything that we can to make sure that uh, everyone is safe. And we are doing this at the direction of the Ministry of Education and the Provincial Health Officer. So we are following their guidelines, and um, they're the ones that are leading this process. Perfect. Um, one of the other things that I saw yesterday on, on the uh, board agenda was talked about international education students. Um, you know, 
Obviously, it's a revenue generator. I believe it made about $460,000 for the school board last year. And there was, uh, you know, some 200 full-time students, I think just over 205.8 full-time equivalent students that were in attendance, um, I believe, in the 2019-2020 uh, school year. And, and looking ahead to next year, I mean, is this a program that uh, I know you talked about its viability for next year and that, um, you know, you could manage about 200 full-time equivalent students next school year, but, um, you know, is this a program that's going to be really challenging to see if it can even go ahead at this point? Um, we fully expect that we will have the international student program go ahead. Um, students that are coming in internationally are exempt from the travel ban. They will still be required to uh, isolate for 14 days once they arrive. So they're going to have to uh, have some extra lead time for when they're arriving. So they're going to have to, like I said, have that 14-day self-isolation. Um, we already have 134 students who have applied for the program to date. So we are uh, feeling that this will go ahead and uh, that we will be, again, working to make sure that the health and safety of everyone involved is uh, at top of mind. Why, why is this an important program, do you think, for SD73? What is it about having international students in our classrooms is, is a, a good one for our students? Having the international students in our schools is an excellent opportunity for all of our kids, not just the international students, but for all of our students. They get to uh, understand other cultures. They get to experience um, the world through a different set of eyes. They're able to broaden some connections and broaden their understanding of the world. And it's just a very enriching uh, situation for all of the students that are involved. Perfect. Well, uh, hopefully we do see, um, you know, some resumption of this program. Like you said, you've already had 130 plus kids uh, that have applied to be in it. So obviously there is a demand. We still got quite a, uh, well, we got four months before school starts. So I'm sure there'll be more demand between now and then. And obviously, like I mentioned, a revenue generator as well and, and other uh, intangible uh, benefits that it brings to the school board. Um, uh, well, we'll get you out of here on this, Kathleen, because you mentioned it before we started uh, officially chatting here. It was, um, you know, you had your school board meeting last night and some kids sort of crashed the party. Maybe tell me a little bit about what happened and, and why it was, uh, you know, what, what was interesting about this, um, these art projects that kids were showing off yesterday. So every year we have our Young Artists Conference and this year it was a little bit different because the kids weren't able to get together in person. And so last night we got to see the results of some of our young artists that we got to see online last night. So they did a slideshow and each of the young artists was able to speak about their art project. And uh, people may have seen on art that uh, showcased the artwork of our young artists. And I believe that's on our website. But last night they were able those projects to the board. They were able to speak about them and their projects will be uh, showcased at the board office for the next year. And of course, uh, right now we can't get into the board office because most uh, facilities are, are closed to the public. So um, is there still an opportunity at this point in time for those who want to check out some of these projects to do so? I believe the uh, is uh, still up on the website, yes. 
Perfect. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and chat with me. I know uh, lots of kids are excited to get back in the classroom, and I'm sure some parents are excited to see their kids get out of the house as well. And, um, you know, awesome that there's also an opportunity to see some of the work that kids have been uh, doing here over the past, you know, six weeks or so as they have been stuck at home, and obviously they've been productive. So that's great. Thanks so much for doing this, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. That was the board chair for the Kamloops Thompson School Board, Kathleen Carpuck, and her, her cell phone tailed out a bit at the end there. But, uh, yeah, she was just saying you can log on to the SD73 website and take a bit of a virtual tour and see some of that artwork that the kids have been up to. Well, let's take a quick break, and when I come back, I'm going to be talking with a local hairdresser about what the plans are to start reopening business. How are the barbershops going to be able to provide those haircut services that so many people desperately need? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that after this, so stick around, and the Jeff Andrea Show will be right back. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show, and thanks for tuning in here with me. As we get into phase two of the province's restart plan, among the businesses that have been given the green light to start reopening is hair salons. Well, what is that going to look like? Well, I'm joined now by the owner of Manhandler Barbershop in downtown Kamloops, Deanna DeChico. Deanna, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'll just start with an easy question here. I mean, when, when you first heard the news last week, you know, that hair salons were among those uh, businesses that could start reopening following the long weekend, were you surprised when you saw that that timeline was coming out? Yes, I was surprised because um, we were always told that we would be kind of in a later phase. Um, and, you know, because we're so close proximity, we didn't know what that would look like for us. Um, I was always in my mind, I guess I had a bit of a, I was hoping for June, um, but I was hearing much later. So I was surprised when they said May long because like after May long, because we were kind of, you know, June 1st seemed like an early start. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, and I felt like we haven't, you know, uh, Dr. Henry was telling businesses to think about how to reopen, and so I was doing that, and I was ordering things that I thought I might need, but um, without guidelines, you're not really sure what you need, and um, so I was just kind of getting what I thought, but all of those things are still backed up till, you know, first week of June was uh, some of them. If so, I'm lucky. Yeah. So with with all that being said, you're sort of looking at June as a potential target date. And now that it is a couple of weeks earlier than that, I mean, do you feel right. prepared? And, and what is your, your plan right now? Do you have a, an opening date in mind at this time? Um, I mean, we want to open uh, as soon as we're allowed because one reason being we don't want to lose customers to other businesses that open up before us. Um and, you know, we want to be ready because, you know, our funding isn't there anymore once we're supposed to be able to start. So we want to be ready to start. Um, it's just really hard when there's so much back order for PPE and stuff has been uh, tough. Uh, the, you know, we need disposable capes. That's something we had to order. It's not in yet. Um, you know, the masks, uh, not just for ourselves, but we have to be able to have some for clients if they don't have their own. 
Um, you know, whether we need some plexiglass, we need some decals. I mean, those are all things that take time to uh, make and and bring in. And the mail right now is uh, quite slow on all these things. So it's definitely a challenge. Um, I'm, I have a lot of customers getting in touch and saying, when are you opening? Mm-hmm. And I want to give them a date, but I don't want to set a date and then realize I have none of the stuff I right. need. Right, so basically kind of in a holding pattern until you get some of that material, and, and then you might have a, a better idea of how quickly you can, can get all your, your exactly. I's dotted and T's crossed, right? I guess, you know, sort of exactly. work out all those details. Um, yes. So, with, with you know, as you've kind of been looking ahead and, and planning for a reopening date, I'm sure you have a little, bit of a, a little bit of an idea of sort of what it would look like if someone were to come in and get a haircut. I mean, can you maybe describe what you think it would look like at this stage of the game? Um, okay, so one of the things that um, we, our shop especially has always been walk-in, so that's going to change. We have to make appointments for the most part um, because we just have to space out our customers. Um, so that's going to be a big difference is uh, we'll have to have a, an appointment basis. Two, we may have to lock our door and only allow so many in at a time. Um, we have spots, you know, six feet apart for them to sit. Um, we're going to look, you know, like, uh, like you're going to your local hospital probably. We're going to try to have face shields, masks. Um, we might be using gloves. Uh, um, you know, we'll maybe see about plexiglass. I got to see, like, that's where the guidelines are a little hazy. So we're kind of in charge of making our own plans, but it's very costly to put in all these measures and a barbershop is not a money-making type of business. So mm-hmm. <laughs> got to be careful how much I spend. And that's another thing, our PPE costs, um, you know, it will a- affect our hair cutting prices because we just can't swallow all of that. Um, cost so we'll probably have to tag on uh, a few dollar charge to compensate for all the safety measures that we have to put in place Mm -hmm. to cut hair and then we're going to be taking probably half the customers we could before so that's a big impact on our on our income you know yeah um what is the comfort level right now too amongst your staff i mean i'm sure a lot of people are really hoping to get back to work right they want to get out of the house and they want to be able to to perform uh you know what they're they're skilled at and and cut people's hair but um, is there sort of any sort of uncomfort level from your staff and and you know maybe not feeling awesome about heading back to work this quick Yes. Um, I mean, we're all different people, and uh, so it depends on the person. But for the most part, we are very close. We touch people, you know, we we are touching their hair. Some people have, you know, open, you know, psoriasis or something on their hair. So we're very, you know, that's a pretty close proximity to be with somebody. And, and uh, so... You know, the anxiety level is definitely high among the girls. They're just wondering, you know, one is a single mom. She has a fairly young child, so she's the only caretaker, so that's a big deal for her. Um, you know, even leaving her child for, you know, that needs child care while she's working is another concern. And same for me. Um, I have three children, and we have to figure out where they're going to go. School is, we're not even sure what's happening. And then in the summer, it's grandparents that babysit, and so I'm worried about bringing it home and getting my parents sick if they're watching my kids. So that's a big anxiety as far as going back, um, what our babysitting looks like. 
and those are big concerns for us. Oh, and then the other thing that I'm concerned about is when we take time off. Like I said, one's a single mom. How does she take 10 days to just make sure she's feeling okay um, with no pay, you know, because we're self-employed? And so um, those are all just really difficult things that we're all... I think that's more the level of anxiety is just all these questions that we don't have answers to. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm sure I'm sure that there's a, you know a lot of businesses, not just hair salons, that are going through a lot of these questions and trying to find out exactly what the answers are. And um, you know, as you kind of look towards next week, um, you know, I guess if everything were to go perfectly for you right now and you were to get all your supplies, what would be your best case scenario for an opening date? Do you have one? Uh, my best case scenario is the 19th. I would like to have everything I could in place, but. Um, I'm just not sure that that is possible. So that's our that's our earliest wannabe get there date, um, and probably my latest I would hope would be the June first date that I originally was trying to shoot at and be ready for. So. Uh, well, yeah. we'll keep our fingers crossed for you that you can get things going uh, as quickly as possible. And I guess uh, probably final note here to make sure that if anyone is looking to get their haircut, that they uh, make sure they call ahead. Yes, and we will have um, we will have an appointment thing made up, and and we're posting everything on our Facebook page and our uh, website. So if people want information, go there, and we'll post as soon as we know, because we want we want to not lose any customers. <laughs> well, Deanna, thank you so much for taking the time. Really do appreciate it, and I know there's a lot of people out there who are itching to get their hair haircut. So uh, <laughs> hopefully, you can uh, accommodate people sooner than later. But thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. That was the owner of Manhandler Barbershop here in downtown Kamloops, Deanna DeChico. Well, on that happy note, it's about time for me to wrap things up here. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday, and I'll be back here tomorrow at noon.